Greetings and welcome to Stamper Cinema. I am your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. And today we've got a pretty awesome movie to discuss. It is one of the, the finer Tim Burton movies, certainly one of his earlier movies to boot. We are talking about the early 1990s masterpiece, Edward Scissorhands, starring Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, Diane Wiest, Anthony Michael Hall, and many, many others. I mean, this movie, you know it, you love it. It's got that killer Danny Elfman score. We're going to take a nice deep dive into this movie today. And the guests that are going to help us do it comes to us from, well, he's going to tell it to us himself, but I think you guys are going to be blown away. He's an actor, writer, director, filmmaker, movie lover, probably above all else. And uh, just an absolute delight. He's super funny. You're going to love him. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Mr. Ali Khamsa. Ali, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, it's been quite a busy day. I know it's morning for you, but it's nearing the late evening for me. So, so Ali, you're, you're in Iran, correct? Uh, yes, yes, I am in Iran. <laughs> now, whereabouts in Iran are you? Uh, I'm in Tehran, the capital mm-hmm. of Iran. Uh, it's sort of centerish, <laughs> right? Ali and I actually touched base several months ago, but due to a myriad of different circumstances, we haven't been able to facilitate this interview. But this is something that I've been really, really jazz, uh, really jazzed about, and excited the opportunity to talk to you about. Obviously, we're going to get into. Edward Scissorhands in just a couple of minutes, but there were a couple of things in your your biography that I wanted to uh, touch base and hope that you might be able to provide a little little added insight. So what I've got for a biography for Ali is a bearded nerd from Iran in his mid twenties with a particular interest in the motion pictures as a hobby has a very high opinion of Jeremy Irons, adores yes. westerns and musicals, and loves movies from the sixties. So, I mean, right off the bat, a lot of great stuff, but I have to ask about the Jeremy Irons uh, very high Uh, opinion. So what can you tell me about that? Well, it started off as kind of a joke. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, my favorite character of all time was Scott from Lion King. And, uh, well, he was voiced by Jeremy Irons. So I knew him from like a very young age, but... In 2012, I watched the movie Beautiful Creatures. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone in it except Emma Thompson, which I knew from Harry Potter and all of that. And this other guy who I thought sounded very cool and acted very cool. And I thought, okay, who is that guy? And turned out it was Jeremy Irons. And so it sort of became a joke after that. He became my favorite he is my favorite actor in many regards, but I sort of started uh, saying that, like, I practice ironism as a religion, and, like, <laughs> I have a, a portrait of him on my wall, actually, that I do in high school. So it sort of became a bit of a joke, but he is my favorite actor of all time. I think he has an incredible voice, like, I mean... Top 10 voices for me is number one, Jeremy Irons, then Christopher Lee. But 
speaking of Christopher Lee, Tim Burton actually has a good uh, relationship with him too, had a good relationship with him too. And so it's sort of like that. Uh, he is my favorite actor, but the amount of adoration I have for him is has become, well, pun intended, a bit ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, obviously, you you referenced Beautiful Creatures and you referenced uh, The Lion King. What um, are either of those your favorite Jeremy Irons films, or do you now have a different uh, favorite film? Oh, uh, Jeremy Irons. I mean, uh, The Lion King is still my favorite movie with him in it, but uh, live action movie. It's actually Dead Ringers, uh, the nineteen ninety seven Lolita. It's The Mission, which is a great movie. It's Louis Malle's Damage. Uh, again, a great movie. And of course, uh, it's an utterly underrated movie, M. Butterfly, Monsieur Butterfly from David Cronenberg, which, weirdly enough, not a lot of people talk about. I'm, I don't know why. Yeah, that's actually one that a Cronenberg film that I have not seen. No. Um, I was going to ask about Dead Ringers to see what your, what, what your thoughts are on that. I saw that movie way too young in my life and didn't i i I must have i probably was like nine years old which is not age appropriate for a nine-year-old to be to be observing so it wasn't until um you know my early 20s that i revisited it but i just remember like what is this uh but quite a film so i mean i love it i love that you're you've got uh uh an affinity for jeremy irons work i incredible actor. I also, even though he's had a very prolific uh, career, I think he's fairly underrated as an actor. I don't think he he gets as much appreciation as he probably deserves. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, okay, this is a bit of a rant. Uh, when they remade Lion King, they brought back James Earl Jones, who sounds much older and much tired. They didn't bring back Jeremy Irons. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, you definitely made the wrong choice here because out of those two, all due respect to James Earl Jones, which is a great actor, his voice is noticeably older. Jeremy Irons' voice is older, but he still feels like, you know, he can carry that role, that animality. I don't know if that is a word or not. (laughs) Yeah, I I think to use kind of a little Western jargon, there's still something very, very silky about his voice. It's very smooth. Uh, and it has yes. a very good bravado to it. Right. Where yeah. James Earl Jones, much to your, to your point, he's still James Earl Jones, but it, it's definitely a senior James Earl Jones. You, you can definitely tell that he's, he, he's moved on in, uh, in, in his years as he's had, you know, quite a very extensive career of his own. Right. But yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's awesome. Now also on your bio, I mentioned that you're writer director. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, your own, uh, film work that you've, that you've, uh, you've worked on? I've, I've made, a, I've been involved in a bunch of movies as like, um, assistant director, Oddly enough, as an actor, like I, I do say I'm occasional actor, but I've been more actor than I've been director. Actually, sure. uh, I've directed a few movies, uh, none of them good. Still, <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to make that one movie, which is like I'm, I'm happy with this one because the movies I've made so far have been more experimentations than like mm. what I can do. Like, uh, I've made a movie. Uh, I, I, I need to upload it somewhere, I guess. Um, yes. 
it's a shot reverse shot of a conversation. Um, so it's just two people talking. But every time we cut between them, the camera has moved slightly. Uh, believe me, it's not a fun experience. You will get dizzy watching it, but it was fun making it. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, the, the the work that you've done, is it... And, you know, forgive my ignorance, but like, uh, is it, would it be in like Farsi or have you done English speaking films or what? It's, uh, I've done them in Persian. Uh, I've done more YouTube videos in English. Uh, to be honest, it's mainly because I don't have English speaking actors here or right. crew here. So they have been in Persian, but, uh, like when I, when I'm on myself, like with a bunch of YouTube videos that I've done. I think actually one of my YouTube videos is perhaps the best movie I've ever made. It's <laughs> it's one about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, okay, okay. And uh, I talk about all of the adaptations of it, including the Green Knight, which I, I don't know if you've seen it or not. The yes. two two. It, it was my, and we haven't spoken about this, but this it was my favorite film of last year. Me too. Like, it's such a great movie. It's such mm-hmm. a great movie. And so... Uh, when I'm by myself, I do them in English. I find speaking in English, uh, expressing myself in English, actually kind of easier than in Persian, uh, which <laughs> might show a great deal of uh, dissonance with my home country. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, so the reason why I ask is obviously primarily the those that listen to um, this podcast are more in like our Western hemisphere. So I was just kind of curious more than anything. I mean, as you are the the first person that I've spoken to over in Iran, to be sure. I mean, uh, I, uh, I may have had a couple downloads in Iran, but I, uh, the, 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 you're the first guest. So I'm sure my listeners are just more than anything, just curious to know, you know, what the, what the film landscape looks like over there, the type of stuff that you like to do, even oh. films out of Iran that, that, that if there is a Western like audience, like, Hey, this is a movie that I think would trans uh, translate very well over in North America, like an Iranian, you know, filmmaker that you think somebody Um, that we should, we should look into. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, this year, the Cannes uh, festival has just ended. And uh, I don't know if you followed it or not. Uh, There was an Iranian movie, in the running uh, called The Holy Spider and the Best Actress Award actually got to the actress from that movie, Zahra Amir Ebrahimi. I I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm not going to say anything on it. It might be good. It might be bad. I haven't seen it yet. I cannot say it. But speaking of Iranian cinema, I actually made another video about it. Uh, Iranian cinema is kind of an anomaly to me. Like... Uh, in order for me to say there are movies that I think would translate pretty good. Some of them have uh, the works of Abbasikiyarustami. Um, like he has a movie called A Taste of Cherry, which I highly recommend. Uh, he has a movie called The Wind Will Carry Us, which I highly recommend. Close Up, which I uh, just watch his movies. He, he's, he was sure. a great director. <laughs> and uh, But... The thing is, uh, if I want to say an Iranian movie in a sense that I call this one a genuine Iranian movie, 
I don't think it would translate very well, like the works of uh, Bahama Beizai or Ali Hatami. Both are great directors, but the works is shrined in Iranian culture, in Iranian mysticism, in Iranian language. So it's like, uh, how do you uh, translate it without losing a part of it? So mm-hmm. it's a very tricky question for me. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for sharing that. Fortunately, all that is recorded, so I'll be able to at least uh, uh, cite the films that you mentioned in the in the episode notes for people, so people can click on the links and, and find out a little bit more about the films that you that you just referenced and everything. And I'm I'm excited about it because part of the reason why I have this podcast is I want to know what other people enjoy. So that way it can also expand my own personal horizons. It's not just uh, me to stand on my soapbox and talk about the movies I enjoy. The whole reason why I've got this is I want to know what you like so I can watch it and we can have a conversation about it. So I do thank you very much for for sharing that. Now, before I transition over into Edward Scissorhands, what specifically, what about film about your favorite films, rather, I think is a more uh, appropriate way. What are some things about your favorite films that, that that you're attracted to? What is it that you think makes good cinema? What is it that that resonates you as as an artist or as a viewer? What what are you attracted to? Well, um, is it okay if I say that with an anecdote? <laughs> Please, I would love it. Um, my favorite movie of all time is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I'm sure everyone has seen it. It's perhaps the most famous Western of all time, which, to be honest, I always found it very funny considering when it came out, critics tried to pan it, calling it Spaghetti Western as an insult. And then the most mm-hmm. famous Western of all time is a Spaghetti Western. I just love that irony (laughs) and uh, when i was a teenager i i always knew i wanted to make stories write stories and just tell stories i wanted to be a writer for a long time and to for a long time i felt like oh writing is the ultimate form of telling a story and then i watched the good the bad and the ugly and i remember it because i i needed to go to school in around 7 a.m and so i watched it at 11 p.m. the night before, I slept, I woke up at 4 a.m., I watched it again, then I went to school, and I'm, can I curse or not? Of course. (laughs) Yeah, please. Use profanity. Fuck, do it. (laughs) Yeah. I said, fuck books, I want to do this. (laughs) Uh, The thing is that movies... To me, it's it's kind of beyond words. Like, I can't really explain it. It's just that you're literally yanked away for 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, four hours to another world. And you're told a story and you get to feel you're in that story in a sense that a book may do with your own mind. But in a movie, the artist has everything in his arsenal to throw at you. You have... Well, the camera, you have uh, performances, you have writing, you have music, you have set design, you have color, you have all of these and like forms of art that emanate from this. You have editing, you have um, all of these tools in the arsenal 
with the sole purpose of giving you an experience you will never have again in your life. And this is as far as I can go to actually explaining it. Like beyond that, it's just beyond words for me. Yeah, no, that, I think that that's very articulate. I, I totally follow what you're saying. Um, so I do appreciate, and uh, I think many of our listeners will totally echo uh, your your thoughts on that. So let's let's get into the the meat and potatoes, as they say here, uh, when it comes to what we're what we're here to talk about, and that of course is the 1990 Tim Burton release, Edward Scissorhands. Now, Ali, this was your this was your choice. This is a movie that you said that you'd like to discuss on the podcast. So yes. let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about it. Let's let's talk why you wanted to talk about it, and then of course, here in just a minute, we'll we'll do kind of like a little a little summary, if you will, of the film, but. I'm, I'm kind of curious why you wanted to discuss this film. Uh, I need to mention something. I do have OCD and I like to list things. I, I like to have them in lists because my brain sort of needs to get to them faster. Uh, my second favorite director of all time is uh, Tim Burton. And my favorite movie of Tim Burton is Edward Scissorhands, which is in fact my sixth favorite movie of all time. <laughs> and so... The reason I wanted to talk about it is because despite it being quite a famous movie from Tim Burton, I feel like it's always being overshadowed by either his more um, mainstream ones like Batman or Mm -hmm. his more um, weird ones uh, like Nightmare Before Christmas, which is, again, a great movie. Like These are all great movies. I'm just saying that this one is as great. Or... um, Nightmare Before Christmas or his later movies, which have not been very good. (laughs) No, they have not. It's kind of sad that one of the last movies uh, Christopher Lee worked on with uh, Tim Burton was Dark Shadows of All Movies. (sighs) Yeah, I have a a tough, I have a love-hate relationship with, with Tim Burton films, simply for the fact that I love old Tim Burton movies so much. And I have a very strong disliking of a lot of his more modern films. I think think he's had a couple, a couple wins over the past 20 years, but by and large, not, not as strong. I mean, when you, when you look at just how he came onto the scene with uh, Pee Wee's big adventure and then into Beetlejuice. uh, Beetlejuice and, and Batman and then this and Batman returns. I mean, uh, Ed Wood, I mean, he he was just ringing out really high quality cinema, yeah. and uh, and then he got a little experimental uh, experimental with you know some special effects and CG, and and then his films have just kind of gone that direction as opposed to some a little bit more like practical effects that were that were once upon a time used by him, and I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to say the filmmaker has lost his way because he's been highly successful, but. For my tastes, yeah, just I'm not I'm not the the biggest fan of his of his recent works. I mean, I mean, you're too kind. I will say he's lost his way. <laughs> <laughs> like I and I know this will probably have people hate me. I'm not a big fan of his Sweeney Todd adaptation either. Mm, okay, yeah, <laughs> I I've spoken about Sweeney Todd on a previous episode. I saw it in the theater, so I've only seen it one time. It did. It, it didn't do anything for me. So I, I have I have gone on record and said that I will revisit Sweeney Todd. But like you, I wasn't really much of a fan 
of of Sweeney Todd. Uh, to be honest, oddly enough, I didn't go to Sweeney Todd because it was a Tim Burton movie. Uh, I, as I said in my bio, I'm a big fan of musicals. Uh, as I was starting my journey into musicals, a lot of people told me you should listen to Stephen Sondheim stuff, and I do agree. If you like musicals, you should listen to the late Stephen Sondheim works. He he was just a magnificent composer and just storyteller. His most famous work is Sweeney Todd. And so I watched the movie and I thought, okay, this isn't a big deal that everyone told me it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I watched a stage recording of it from 1982. And then I got why it was the big deal that everyone told me about. And so that sort of made me dislike the Burton version even more because, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sorry, it, this is this is very narcissistic and like pluggy of me. I made a video about it for like November of 2021. Oddly enough, five days before Stephen Sondheim passed away. Oh no! <laughs> there was a joke that I have a picture of him in black and white, and I keep calling him the genius. And a friend of mine told me, "Ali, please don't do that to living people." <laughs> yeah, you, you you're not allowed to talk about living people anymore. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna we're gonna lose somebody else in five days. Yeah, exactly. Now, I do want to circle back because you can't you can't tell somebody that a certain movie is your number six, because that means you at least know five other films, that, which we know The Good, Bad, and The Ugly is your all time favorite. Yes. And we know that this is your number six. I guess you got to You got to you got to let us know that that top 10 or those movies that that are that are two, three, five. You can't throw that little teaser at us without me asking about it. Uh, well, the first one is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The second one is The Godfather Part 1, um, mm. because it's just the best script ever written. Right. Uh, the third one is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Okay, uh, I, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Oh, yeah. I've got the, I've got, uh, the, the Criterion Blu-ray. I love, I love oh. Brazil. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's a great movie. The fourth one is another Terry Gilliam movie. It's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, which I know has a very split discussion on it. Some people love it to death. Some people hate it to death. And uh, the fifth one is Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, another Sergio Leone movie. Right. Uh, and then the sixth one is Edward Scissorhand. The seventh one is The Lion King. <laughs> I still, I think it's the best animated movie ever you made. Don't ever have to, you don't ever have to defend your your, your top ten. I mean, I, every movie that you've reeled off are are really really great films. So thank you. Keep <laughs> uh, number eight is another Terry Gilliam movie. It's Twelve Monkeys, uh, which I mean, just that scene of what a wonderful world. I mean, by God, that is such a great scene. Um, and the ninth movie is Up, the animated movie Up. Yes. And the tenth one, which is the first comedy in my top 100 movies, it's Monty Python's Life of Brian. I mean, Ali, those are all awesome, awesome flicks. I mean, personally, to my own, my own like tastes and sensibilities, uh, Twelve Monkeys is probably probably my favorite of. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Godfather, uh, I would. Uh, say is my favorite of those bunch, but for for the record, I, I love every single one of those movies that you that you just cited. Thank but, you so much. But from from a watchability factor, I've seen Twelve Monkeys so many times. I, it, it's a movie that 
that um, came out, you know, I, when that movie came out in 95, 96, thereabouts. 95, I think. 95. So yeah, I would have been, uh, I would have been a teenager. I was 15 when that movie came out and it, it came in at a really great time where post-apocalyptic movies were like right up my alley. And I, I saw it in the theater, fell in love with it and immediately went and saw it in the theater again. And, uh, it, it just, it, it, it shook me, you know, I, I love the, the, well, I loved every element of that film, but we could go on forever just talking about, dude, I, Ali, I feel I can talk to, talk to you about movies for forever, but for the sake of this conversation, well, let's, uh, let's get back into Edward Scissorhands, but thank you very much for, uh, for, for citing your top 10. Um, I'm going to have a lot of movies to throw out in the, in the comment section, just to go into it. So Edward Scissorhands. Uh, yes, Edward Scissorhands, the love story that, um, okay, this this kind of bugs me. Uh, a lot of people cite uh, The Shape of Water as the movie where the monster gets, the, gets to be the romantic lead. And I'm here thinking, well, what about Edward Scissorhands? It's the Beauty and the Beast story, literally. Mm-hmm. But here the Beast is just a socially awkward humanoid that is literally made out of a desire of an inventor to make a human. It's literally a child being thrown out in the world. It's literally the Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Yes. Um, and what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to just reel off the the Rotten Tomatoes little like uh, summary blurb just for the the two or three people in this world that haven't seen this film. But uh, the, the bio for Edward Scissorhands is a scientist, played by Vincent Price, builds an animated human being. The gentle Edward, played by Johnny Depp. The scientist dies before he can finish assembling Edward, though, leaving the young man with a freakish appearance accentuated by the scissor blades he has instead of hands. Loving suburban saleswoman Peg, played by Diane Weist, discovers Edward and takes him home, where he falls in love for Peg's teenage daughter, played by Winona Ryder. However, despite his kindness and artistic talent, Edward's hands make him an outcast. And then drama ensues. So there you go. Just for the the listeners that haven't seen it, that's just a little small little blurb about what the movie what the movie is about. And yeah, I mean, you you just mentioned like this is just kind of the Frankenstein's monster kind of story, right? I mean, this is something that obviously Tim Burton looked back to uh when he was creating this story and when they when they when they made this film and they they do tap into different little sensibilities into kind of you know not necessarily the bride of frankenstein but having that that romantic relationship with a you know with a winona Ryder's character in this but just a just a beautiful beautiful movie i remember you know again just watching this when it came out and i appreciated it I remember watching it after I had seen Edward Scissor, or rather uh, Beetlejuice, and that that was my my jam at the time. You know, I uh, so this movie was a complete complete one eighty in the way that specifically Winona Ryder, who was in both films, uh, her you yeah. know where she had kind of that gothy look in Edward Scissorhands, and in this one she's you know beautiful uh, blonde and just a different. Uh, uh, you, you, I'm sorry, you said Edward Scissorhands. You meant a cough uh, lady in Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, thank you very much. I'm 
I'll go all over the place. Uh, but yeah, so in Beetlejuice, Winona Ryder had, you know, kind of her gothy look. And then obviously yeah. in this one, she she had that more of a that blonde look. But so what what is it about Edward Scissorhands that 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 you love? What you know, what why is it you want to talk about this film? I mean, uh, before we go on, you you mentioned it's a 180 from Beetlejuice to Edward Scissorhands, and I wanted to say two words have never been spoken <laughs> <laughs> because when you put the cynicism at the heart of Beetlejuice next to the childlike innocence of Edward Scissorhands, it's like, who, okay, which one of these is the real Tim Burton? <laughs> That's a great question. Especially when he keeps coming back and forth, like Mars Attacks is very cynical, but then Big Fish is very optimistic. It's like... Right. Edward Scissorhands, again, for me, it's kind of like, it's a story that I identify with, I can say, the most, being an outcast, I feel everyone feels like an outcast sometimes, especially like the quote-unquote artists always felt like an outcast. The optimism of it always warms my heart, but at the same time, the movie doesn't have a happy ending. It doesn't end with Edward getting the girl. It ends with him just being alone with his art, with his ice blocks and creating snow for this city. And so it's always have it's always warmed my heart to the to a degree that some some of it I can't explain why. Like I remember that scene. I'm sorry, I keep uh going in circles. Uh, there is this scene that I love. It's one of the most famous scenes, so I think people who have seen the movie probably remember. Before Edward has to leave and just goes away uh, to the castle forever. Uh, we don't know either. I don't remember her character's name. <laughs> Kim? Is it Kim? Yeah. Kim tells him that, hold me, and Edward brings up the, well, scissor hands and then brings them down and says, I can't. Mm-hmm. And that scene alone, it's just, it's what I, you mentioned what I want in a movie. That's what I want. That's the moment where I felt Edward's pain. Like throughout the movie, you get to feel with these characters. You get to know these characters. You get to realize Edward's innocence and uh, Kim, uh, Kim's also innocence. It's an innocent movie. It's, it's filled with innocence being corrupted. And you see that at that moment, Edward just, wants to, like, uh, how do I say it? Like, he would have given his life at that moment just to have hands, and he Mm -hmm. doesn't have them. He has scissors, and he can't hold anyone. It's so beautiful, and it's so poetic that, you know, you literally can be right next to somebody, but you can't help but still feel a million miles away because you can't ever have that, that true, you can't have that true connection because... Every time, I mean, shoot, he barely has a connection with himself. I mean, you see all the scars on his face, you know, from him cutting himself all the time and, you know, not being able to really embrace anybody. And, you know, the the few interactions where they do touch, I mean, he he slices her hand, you know, and yeah. it's um, it is quite something. And visually, visually, uh, Tim Burton did just a fantastic job just being able yeah. to. Uh, to really tap into that 
that isolation and that kind of just like really huge world. I mean, when we are, when we, when we're introduced to him, right, we, we go into the, the eventers like mansion and he's up in the, in the, that attic and the attic has like the giant like holes in it. So even in that hole, you still see like a very like expansive world. And, um, I forget, uh, Diane Weiss's character, she's on the far end, you know, over by, by that, the big kind of like fireplace and you see him, completely on the other end and you just see that distance and that distance is one of those those themes that that are recurring in um in this film i mean just spatial distance is something that i think is uh beautifully executed in this film whether the scene that you're thinking of or even like my favorite scene which is so subtle and kind of silly but that the morning where all the men they uh, they get out of the front doors. They all hop into their cars and they drive off. And just the way that is choreographed, and again, just that the spatial distancing. Everybody is so so similar, but still so far apart, right? Because all the, all the houses they all look the same, but they're a different color. All the cars yeah. look the same, but they're just a different color. But just that the, that those visual cues are are just something that that just really, really appeals to my sensibilities. So, I mean, even though that seems kind of silly, it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie just because I'm like, with that scene, you get kind of the idea of what Tim Burton is trying to accomplish with this film. Yeah. This is a, this is a community that it, they all think the same. The, the extent of their imagination is a different color. Mm-hmm. And then comes this, weird guy who uh, shapes the hedges into animals and just creates these beautiful masterpieces of art with his hands. And it's, I, I do know there is social commentary in the movie. Obviously, all monster movies have a social commentary. But one of the scenes, and again, these are, you mentioned these little details. Little details are Burton's like bread and butter. I love how he does them. Uh, it took it took the people of that uh, cul de sac. I think is the name, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, to sort of accept, quote unquote, Edward. And the moment he's walking around angry, and he cuts off the head of a woman, and the woman is like, "I'm calling the police at that very second. And it's like, okay, it took you two seconds to undo all of the quote-unquote goodwill you had so it's it's he's never accepted he's just uh outwardly accepted it's like okay he's quirky but the moment he shows anything other than compliance anything other than sheer happiness it's like no no no. he's dangerous we need to get rid of him he's the monster even after he had burglarized uh Jim is it Jim? I don't know. Um, Anthony Michael Hall's parents' house, right? Like even after yeah. that whole, and he's coming out, and the police are like, you know, show your hands, and the all the people in the neighborhood, they all came to kind of like defend him, like, no, don't shoot. Those are his hands. You know, they they were still kind of on his side until until that moment that you that you just literally cited that lopped off a. Uh, the, the leg on the on that on that topiary and and then all hell breaks loose and then they're they're done with them right yeah as long as you're the monster that we want you're welcome as but exactly. you know yeah and so that always again felt close to me I I mean uh, it's like you were never going to accept him 
there was always that barrier. Edward Caesarhand can never be part of that community. He can't get into a car and go to work wearing uh, those wearing the suit which he shreds up. He shreds off, and that was just a really, really great moment. Just when he when he is shredding those clothes off, that was just really well. Yeah. Just because um, again, this is basically a child and uh, Johnny Depp, who at the time late twenties. You know, he, he looks very innocent. And when he's doing that, even though he still has that kind of like innocent face, you can see just the the heartbreak and the frustration. And then he's just yeah. he, he's sharing like all of like, I'm, I'm not I'm not in this community. I am these. I'm not one of these people. And it's yeah, it, it was just uh, obviously it was it's in the screenplay. But Johnny Depp plays that scene really, really well and just nails it. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think. All of us, even people who are integrated into the community, there are moments where you feel like, "Oh, I'm, 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 we are just strangers." And Burton, being Tim Burton, and well, with the way he looks and the way he acts and the way he talks, he probably felt that quite a lot. Especially, he was born in California, I think. Which, well, um, as far as I know, from uh, like all of my knowledge of America is basically movie based and TV show based. Uh, California to me always seemed very uh, hegemonized. Like it's always so uh, unicolor, if that makes any sense. Mm, okay, okay. And so I can imagine being Tim Burton, being the weird kid, being the kid that liked Christopher Lee movies, like watching Hammer movies. And then suddenly all of your neighbors are calling you that weird kid. And so I think Edward Scissorhands comes from that very deep frustration that I'm not one of you and I will never be one of you. And so I think all of us have felt that at some point. I I know I felt it many times in Iran that I I will not be part of your quote-unquote community. Right, and so when you feel that 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 exhaustion in Johnny Depp's face, like how much more can I help you people before you finally decide that I'm one of you, and then at the end, no, you're still not one of us. Very, very poignant. Very beautiful. Um, Now, obviously, one thing that I like to do when I I bring up a movie is I I like to kind of like circle back. Well, what what do the critics like to say? And I I. We, I often reference the, the the website Rotten Tomatoes on here. So for the listeners, critically, this movie did really well. I mean, you're looking at a movie that on Rotten Tomatoes has a 90% uh, fresh meter, which is extremely well. Uh, audience score right on par with that, 91%. So 91% of the audiences really enjoy this movie, and there's a lot too. But what I also want to do is – find out somebody that didn't necessarily like the film. So mm. famed um, a critic from uh, Chicago would be um, um, uh, Roger Ebert. So when this movie released in 1990, he gave it two out of four stars. So kind of split. But what he had to state on the film is the things that he didn't like was, quote, the disappointment is that Burton has not yet found the storytelling and character building strength to go along with his pictorial flair. Now, so the critique that he really, I guess the point he's trying to make is that 
according to him, there is a lacking in the, the storytelling itself. And I try, I, I try to, when somebody offers a critique that I might disagree with, I try to look at it from their angle and see maybe with where, where they're coming from it. But I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I just gotta say, sorry, Ebert, I think you're wrong on this one. <laughs> I think you're wrong. I think the storytelling is really clear. I think, I think visually he's completely right that the, the visual uh, cues are impressive, but the storytelling yeah. itself, it, it's, a, it's a simple story, but it makes sense. I think that's the thing that you said. It's a simple story. He was like, oh, why, why doesn't it have twists and turns and all of that? I think that's the problem. I, I do understand where people like him are coming from. It's just it's just that all of the characters in Edward Scissorhands are somewhat stereotypical, except for Kim and Edward. But I think that was intentional. It's not a flaw. It's a design choice. I mean, you also take this this American town that doesn't have any distinguishing traits. I mean, it's it, it doesn't take place anywhere. It doesn't even take place in a specific time that's really attributed. Yeah. I know some people have thought that maybe it took place in like the 50s, but they're literally like televisions in color and the, the automobiles aren't what people would have been driving in the 1950s. So it just has a, a timeless Americana element to it, uh, but it could be it could be anywhere and any time. And the, the 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 cues that I think he was really trying to latch onto is not place it within a specific bubble, but just to give it a very artificiality with the, with the way that they were um, setting this town up. I mean, even the bank is not as script as they possibly come. It just says bank, yeah. right? It's just a big building that just says bank. And yeah. the only way that we know it's a bank is we're inside and you just see like uh, him having an interview, trying to open up an account and you see the giant vault right behind <laughs> them. I mean, it, yeah. it's so silly and so ridiculous. It's a movie bank. It's literally a bank that could only be like that in the movies. That's correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Uh, yeah, and that actually brings to the postmodernist sensibilities of Tim Burton. Tim Burton is a postmodernist director. Postmodernism is just that, well, the cinema history is vast enough that we can start recycling it. We can look at movie audiences as we looked at book audiences. It's like we can finally reach the point where movie audiences have seen movies, are inoculated with movies, and so we are using those elements. So everything in Tim Burton movies is made of movies, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before I wrap this up? Unfortunately, it's it's late over in Tehran. So thank you very much for for hanging out with me uh, this evening. But any like closing thoughts, anything that you want to uh, discuss before we uh, wrap up for this evening? Well, uh, there there are a couple of things. First of all, Danny Elfman's music is great. Danny Elfman Mm. is a fantastic uh, composer, I think. and like, I mean, uh, come on, people, all of the superhero themes, you know, they didn't come from Hans Zimmer. They came from <laughs> Danny Elfman. 
is and uh Daniel Fell's music for this movie is just incredibly heartbreaking. And uh another thing I wanted to mention is Vincent Price. Uh, which again, Burton is a postmodernist, uh and Burton is a fan of horror movies. Like he did say he loved to work with Christopher Lee on Sleepy Hollow. Uh Okay, this is completely irrelevant to everything, but I just love this story, so I'm uh, telling it to everyone. Uh, have you seen Sleepy Hollow? Of course. Of course I've seen Sleepy Hollow. Uh, the scene where Christopher Lee is in it, he's hunched over a desk, and he tells Johnny Depp, you must go to Sleepy Hollow. There are two bat wings behind him. I think you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just had to go back and uh, just remember that visual cue. Yes. Yeah, it's just... And not to his Dracula character, which Christopher Lee hated. He hated being associated with Dracula, which I find it very funny. <laughs> I mean, how long did he play Dracula? I mean, just to be associated with that? I mean, I mean from 1958 to 1970, 72, I think. Yeah. So <laughs> he was he was Dracula for quite some time. Yeah, but he hated it. Like, there is this bit in a Star Wars behind the scenes. I do recommend checking it out. It's on YouTube, uh, where he's doing the fight with Yoda, the famous fight with Yoda. Uh, the puppet they have for Yoda, they glue Dracula teeth on it. <laughs> <laughs> and just check it out. I can't explain it. He's so disappointed in George Lucas. He's like, I I couldn't believe you've done this to me oh man i think a lot of people were disappointed with george lucas with the with those prequels but that's a conversation for another time um now just to bring it back to danny elfman because i just wanted to touch base and i don't know how much of this is fact or how much of this is, is something of mythology but the, the character of edward a lot of the look that they that they put into it was inspired by the singer-songwriter by the name of Robert Smith, who's in the band The Cure. It's this English uh, uh, kind of like goth rock band, uh, The Cure. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that look they did was inspired by Robert Smith. And apparently, apparently, they did approach The Cure about doing, or Robert Smith uh, actually about doing music for the soundtrack or even doing the soundtrack itself. Because at this point, oh. at this point, this would have been the third, maybe fourth film, but um, this would have been like the, that first deviation that he would have had working with Danny Elfman in yeah, his yeah. In, in his films. And I can't. And what for the listeners, those that uh, that know me personally, know that I that I love the band The Cure, but I can't imagine a scenario where. Tim Burton didn't work with Danny Elfman. I know there's been a film or two where he hasn't, but yeah. the the soundtrack for this is so iconic, and that that Danny Elfman music that he created for this just fits the the tempo so beautifully. But what also the the reason why Robert Smith and The Cure didn't do it wasn't because they weren't interested. It was because they were working on another album at the time, and that album would go on to be known as Disintegration, which is regarded by The Cure as their like their opus, the, like the, the best album that The Cure ever did. And so had had that come to fruition, 
the those that love the cure probably wouldn't have gotten the band or gotten the album disintegration and we wouldn't have had that beautiful music for for this film so sometimes sometimes uh no to artistic differences is definitely better for both parties yeah uh, speaking of like i found it incredibly interesting the idea of alternate versions of movies where stuff that was supposed to happen didn't right. happen like uh, they wanted Lawrence Olivier to play Don Corleone in The Godfather and I'm like okay uh, I can't imagine anybody else but Marlon Brando but I kind of want to see what Lawrence Olivier's Don Corleone right. would look like this yeah. British yeah. guy and even just to tie into The Godfather um, Winona Ryder was supposed to be in The Godfather 3 she yeah. turned it down for this film. It was this movie. It was Edward Scissorhands that yeah. that she ended up doing the, uh, Edward and not Godfather Three. And then it was Sofia Coppola who did Godfather Three. And yeah, to to middling results. She's yes. a much better director than an actress. <laughs> yes, I mean beautiful, beautiful director. Not not the not the not the greatest actress in the world. Yeah, but which. Funnily enough, led to Winona Ryder getting the rights for Dracula, gifting mm-hmm. it to Francis Ford Coppola, and Francis Ford Coppola making the best Dracula movie ever. So, is that what you'd say? You'd say that um, Francis Ford Coppola is that, that's the, that's your favorite Dracula? Uh, that's my favorite Dracula movie. Uh, okay. My favorite Dracula actor is still Christopher Lee. I think Christopher Lee was born to play Dracula. No matter mm. how much he hated it, it was great. Yeah, um, and you know, we're, we're kind of going all over, and I, that's that's what I do on this podcast, especially when I'm talking to somebody else that loves movies. I, I will just we'll just circle all over the place. Um, that's okay by me. <laughs> I was just trying to think, what is my favorite Dracula film? I mean, I did enjoy both versions of Nosferatu, you know, so the, the, the classic silent and then the one, the, uh, um, exactly from the seventies. Uh, and then obviously you had your Christopher Lee, you had your Peter Cushing, you know, you've had Bella Lugosi. Lugosi. Um, but I think film wise, I think, I think, I think I'm in agreement with you. I stylistically, I, I think, I think Bram Stoker Dracula, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's version is probably the most, uh, scary of the bunch it, it feels it, it feels more horrific and it's the deepest one i think like it's the one where you finally get dracula to tell you why he does the things he does yeah which nowadays it's kind of impossible to make a dracula story without that like mm-hmm. even hotel mm-hmm. transylvania the animated movie has to tell us why dracula is the way he is but when you look at christopher lee movies no dracula is just dracula like he's just dracula <laughs> yeah he's a monster when you look at the old nosferatu he's literally the spawn of the devil like there is no nuance in the character of count orlock uh, which was nosferatu it's just he's he's the devil like what what do you want from me? He's the devil. But when right. you get to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> it's he finally has a character, and uh, exclude uh, Keanu Reeves from that movie. It's a perfect movie. <laughs> That's so funny that you brought that back because I, I was uh, starting to say that, and you um, you um, started to uh, speak uh, far more again far more eloquently than I. But I was going to say. 
everything in the film, I think, is a, a great success, except for Keanu Reeves' uh, performance, which, you know, and God love Keanu Reeves, you know, uh, he's uh, he is what he is. You, you, you love him uh, in the stuff that he's good and you just kind of smile at him in the stuff that he's bad. But yeah. Um, he made a good Neo, didn't make a good Jonathan Harker. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Um, Ali, our, our time's about up. And I just want to say thank you so much. I've had an absolute joy uh, chatting with you. And anytime you'd ever love to come back and talk about another movie or another, you know, uh, 20 or so, I think we, we've covered this evening. Uh, I'd, I'd love to have you back. This is, this has been, this has been so much fun. Hopefully, hopefully you've, uh, you've had a good time as well. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time, like just discussing all of these movies. And as you said, it's uh, always a joy to talk with someone who loves movies and knows movies. And it, I had a great time. Like the hour just went by I, I it felt like a minute and if you would have me back oh uh but is there anything that we're forgetting uh from the film edward scissorhands and all that or i mean again this is just more of a general conversation but I, I think i think we've i think we've tapped into i think we've tapped into uh at least a small surface of uh what what this movie is all about yeah, yeah, I agree. It's just, at the end of the day, I think it's Burton's most emotional movie. And so I can't view it as anything but. Like even Big Fish, which is a pretty emotional movie, I don't yeah. think it gets as emotional as Edward Scissorhands. I mean, it, I, in, at least in this, I mean, it's a different type of emotion, right? I mean, that one yeah. is really more about death and and that 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 that's that, that type of journey between you know a father and a son and you know yeah. the, the natural element of life that you know we're here and then then we go and is it is our lives remarkable right i mean so it's a different type of emotion where this one is really really rich in emotions and just in a in a different different way but i yeah. think this movie overall i think succeeds has has a little bit more success overall in what Tim Burton was trying to accomplish than Big Fish, which, by the way, I love. I love both films, but this one I would I would give the edge over. I would say I would say this film is is a, a yeah. better, more fuller, complete picture than say Big Fish. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's uh, I feel like it's because Burton has felt more like an outcast in his life than he felt like a father. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> When he was making Edward, he was like, oh, I, I know how to tell this story. But when he was making Big Fish, he's like, I need to tell about how I feel with my own father. Right. Which, if you read his autobiography, Burton by Burton, hasn't been the most smooth relationship. Oh, I'll have to look into that. Well, uh, Ali, thank you. This has been this has been awesome. And um, I'll allow you the opportunity just to close on out. Well, thank you for having me. And if... If you want to talk with about another movie, we can talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula. I, I would it. love to. I love to. I love it. Maybe maybe uh, bring it back uh, for October. So that could be a movie that we could bring into uh, October. I like to do like my horror movie uh, month for for Halloween and everything. So that, that yeah. would be that would be amazing. <laughs> so thanks again to Ali for for joining us here on Stamper Cinema. What an absolute treat of a conversation that was, right? 
Now, in the episode show notes, I will reference a few of the movies that he mentioned. Uh, I believe it was Holy Spider, A Taste of Cherry, The Wind Will Carry Us, in regards to Iranian films that he said we should probably take a look at. So I'll make a note of that. I will also have uh, a link to his, his Instagram, his YouTube, as well as a link to my Instagram, YouTube, Twitter feeds, and what have you. So if you are new to the show, please do me a favor and leave a review how it, wherever you're listening to this podcast on. Definitely be a subscriber and uh, tell your fr- friends. Leave a nice, you know, honest but nice review at the same time. Give me five stars, you know, like five, please. Um, but that's really all I've got to say today. But I had a lot of fun. Hopefully you did as well. And we will see you next time on another episode of Stingless Cinema.